Welcome to the SDG Talks podcast, where we discuss all things around the sustainable development goals and the roadmap to 2030. We are your co-hosts, James and Kevin, here to take you along the SDG ride. We hope you enjoy today's SDG Talks podcast. All the things that we could do to have a significant impact on student achievement. And every year, the researchers are collating it. And what are the things that rise to the top? It's all the things that make learning visible. All the things when teachers are reflecting on, hey, how did that go today? What was my purpose today? And what was my impact? Oh my gosh, and how did that come out? And when you do that in conjunction with others, when you're evaluating yourself and asking yourself, how might I improve? How might I change this or make this better? And when you do that in unison with others, your ability to fast forward your impact is just, it's incredible. SDG Talkers, welcome back. Today, you're gonna hear from Giancarlo Brutto, who is a man of many things, but especially education. Giancarlo engages with government officials, policy organizations, thought leaders, school decision makers, and researchers to gain insights and influence around the trends in the education space. Giancarlo is gonna discuss how to break down barriers and inequalities to enable fair education for all. And most importantly, why we need to empower teachers to rethink the learning process. And in that, why we need new metrics of success to determine student progress. One thing that Giancarlo said that I'll never forget is why we should never underestimate the impact one teacher can make. We're gonna explore many aspects of SDG4 and I know you're all gonna take a lot from this episode. Take care and keep on SDG talking. Giancarlo Broto, welcome to the SDG Talks podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kevin? I'm doing quite well. Where in the world are you located today? So today and every day, I guess, for the last year and <laughs> for the next little bit in Toronto, we're still uh, pretty much locked down here, but uh, looking forward to uh, eventually getting on a plane when we, uh, when we actually uh, get you know, our COVID uh, vaccines and uh, the world starts opening up. But beautiful sunny day here in Toronto. Soon enough. Yeah, it's, it's officially like spring summertime here in Chicago and it's nice. But yeah, hopefully the COVID will continue to, to evolve. But whether we are upset at COVID or kind of annoyed at it, COVID's changed the world forever. And particularly within your field, education has been something that's been impacted more so than arguably any other industry or field. And I would love to know from you sort of two questions to start is one, what does education mean to Giancarlo? Mm. And two, what did COVID teach education? Wow. Two big questions. I'll, I'll start with I'll <laughs> Big start questions. With yeah. <laughs> so what does education mean to Giancarlo? I mean, I guess it's one word. It's opportunity, right? You know, the lens that I look at education through is, you know, there was a time I mean, not too long ago, right, where education uh, wasn't available to a lot of the population. In fact, to a lot of the population today, it's still not available, like, believe it or not. And what it provides is an opportunity for any child who grows up, no matter, no matter their context, no matter where they are in the world, no matter their situation, good or bad, it, it's an equalizer. It gives them an opportunity 
to be able to see themselves and see potential, gives them hope, right? The opportunity for possibilities that exist beyond their current context and to take advantage of that opportunity, right? And to be thriving citizens and to break uh, in a lot of times the, the mindset that a lot of people think that, you know, you are the environment you grow up in, which is not the case. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's an opportunity for exploration of oneself, an opportunity to really find yourself and your place and your value and your ability to contribute as a citizen to the world. And so the one word that describes education for me is opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's how I look at it. And so it seems like I like the idea of how, it, yes, education is opportunity. And it seems that the internet in a lot of ways has, be, has become a, an equalizer or at least or a force multiplier for providing educational services. And granted, there's still different inequalities that exist throughout the world. And I think COVID exposed a lot of these challenges that exist, even having access to a tablet or a phone or having access to the internet in general. That's something that really struck me as a major challenge with trying to provide equal opportunities around education. And so I think just kind of to the second question I'll ask now is from a, a COVID standpoint and the world changing from being more in-person to more virtual. And maybe we'll, we'll continue to find that hybrid moving back. But what did education and, and the different education systems that exist around the world learn from COVID-19? Yeah, so many, so many great lessons, right? And, and you know, what's part of the work that I was doing this year is convening uh, government officials, uh, so senior level government officials and ministers and advisors. Uh, we convened over 600 of them uh, during, during COVID and small groups having candid conversations about this exact question, right? Is what are, what, you know, first it's how do we react? What is our responses? But then it's what, what are the lessons uh, that we're taking away? Um, what are the things that we have to think about as we go forward? And, and there's two big things that I think have resonated and this is both, you know, at a government level, a school system level, even at a school level, and you you hit it, right? It's it's the equity piece, right? And we already we always knew there was an issue. We always knew there was, you know, differences between not just access, right, but even, you know, uh, how much of um a reliance uh, that some of our, our kids and our families had on the school system, even for basic things like uh, ensuring they have a meal, two at least two meals in the day. And when that's gone, it really poses these uh, differences within our, our societies. Or, you know, you, you often see those families that are able to provide, yeah, no problem for them. They just, you know, hired the tutor four or five days a week now versus just the once a week. And so these, for those, you know, for these kids, uh, schooling continued. If anything, it got, you know, it fast forwarded because now these kids have access to a personal personalized instructor every single day. And then meanwhile, on the other side, you have kids who've completely been disconnected from the schooling system altogether. And the school system has no idea what has been happening with these youth. And so it's, it's created this, um, you know, it's, it's put into, and that's just one example, but it, what there's, there's been so many examples where both government officials, school level and school leaders and everybody in between has come to realize that there exists some very big differences within our societies that we need to be very attuned to. Now, at the same time, you know, you heard where countries have been aware of that. They put in a uh, policies or funding in place to try to balance those out. And so when COVID did hit, you know, some of this infrastructures, right, things like access in remote areas and access to devices and special programs with additional funding to these students with that need, you know, students with special needs or students that have more access, they've actually, you know, smiled because, wow, thank goodness we, we were accounting for these in advance. You know, the countries who were always over-investing in those students who needed a little bit more additional supports 
something like COVID kind of reminded them like, yes, thank goodness we've been kind of prioritizing our funding in those ways. And then on the other side, for those that haven't, it's like, oh boy, do we need to really address this access issue? Because all it's done is kind of exasperated it. So I think that's the first big one. The other big one that I have to mention, you know, relates with, you know, for so many years we've, uh, and, you know, we still are, you know, hyper-focused on this concept of, you know, student success is centered around what we measure and what we measure are, you know, these, these academic performance and literacy and numeracy and kind of the, the subject, which are important, right? And it's important to have a literate and a numerate society, but more and more and what COVID has exposed is that at the same time as we develop, you know, these kids' abilities to read and write, we need to develop them as humans, right? Which means we have to look at the development of the whole child. And so mental health and well-being has been at the forefront. In fact, I can't tell you how many different government officials, even ministers themselves said, you know, we have to put mental health and well-being at the forefront, you know, and it's trumping academic, you know, continuity. So how do we make sure we're accounting for the health and well-being of our students, of our staff, and of our families, especially families are being hit, right? Losing jobs, you know, disrupting uh, families and loss of life and you name it, the, the challenges are very real. And so we need to make sure we're accounting for this ahead of, hey, by the way, your standardized assessment is still happening next Friday, right? So that that is that is taken on the wayside. And so what I hope, and I, you know, it's already started happening prior to pandemic, but I, what I hope to see continued, and because the conversation is very real around this topic, is how do we create a more balanced system where we are thinking about a child's development, their whole development, Right, which includes their obviously their cognitive development, but also their uh, social and emotional development at the same time. And there's a lot of countries that have made some great strides, and I think well, COVID has taught a lot of us is the importance of making sure we have an appropriate balance. So well said. And I mean, I think back about my education growing up, and I don't think anyone really ever looks back and thinks back, "Oh man, I wish I would have got a an A in that class instead of a B," or mm -hmm. I, you know, I should have studied more for that test. But it's it's so much of that learning that happens outside the classroom, and and I do think that we need to reevaluate what are these metrics of success for student success. You know, what, what does success look like? Is it and, and and unfortunately, some of these things that are success are are maybe harder quantitative metrics to measure. Mm -hmm. They're more qualitative. They're more these soft skills. They're more mm -hmm. being able to collaborate, to have empathy, to be able to understand a problem, fail, and overcome them. Those are life skills. They're not necessarily something that's meeting a standardized test. So with that need to reevaluate the, I guess, this institutionalized education system that's focused on test scores and meeting different state standards, what is being done or what can we be doing better to maybe rethink how we actually determine what success looks like for, for student growth? Yeah, great, great question. And, you know, if you asked me that question, you know, 18 years ago, 20 years ago, I would have been had to really look hard to find exemplars and examples. You know, there would have been schools that have been doing it, entire districts that are doing it. I'd probably be able to find you a couple. Entire states or countries doing it. Ooh, it would have been a little bit more difficult. They still existed. Like you look at Japan's curriculum. It's been infused like since the onset, right? And there's other curriculums around the world where they have a nice balance and it's explicitly stated. Nowadays, I am so impressed. Like, you know, about five or six years ago, I, I actually did a lit review of, of different policy documents around the world. And I was, I shocked me how many countries are actually in, embedding and infusing even just the language into it. Like even in the US, 
you know, they're the last national ed tech plan. They're currently building one right now, but the prior one had a whole section just talked about social emotional learning, right? And it wasn't a big section, but it basically was there to say, hey, people who are interested in education and technology, you have to start thinking about how you might leverage ed tech tools to develop both cognitive and social emotional competencies at the same time. Like, and that just the language in the policy document is huge because it starts giving us cues about where we're headed in what direction. And so, you know, it's great to see now you have organizations like Castle in the US, who's been a great coordinator and orchestrator of all, you know, states that have statewide initiatives and funding districts who have gone to, you know, a more balanced approach and even schools. And also what tools, programs, assessment, metrics that people are using. You now hear of entire schools that are, you know, they don't give any more grades anymore, right? And it's more just formative feedback and the formative feedback doesn't just include progress in, you know, specific uh, cognitive uh, developments like their, you know, a student's ability to uh, understand algebra and, and work with, uh, you know, uh, exponential notation, but also includes things like a student's progress in their ability to be a, an effective communicator or to be, a, you know, a collaborative uh, contributor. And so we're seeing that a lot more. And now, even at the government level, right, there's entire countries that alongside their literacy and numeracy assessments, there's now social and emotional assessments, right? So you have, you know, Turkey, who's now doing these national assessments of social emotional learning. You have, is it Hong Kong, right? Their K through six students are being assessed. You have, you know, the, the Ministry in Ontario, and this is where I'm from, you know, in the report card, it's always been a section where the teachers have to report on two, three times a year on a student's progress on their ability to communicate, to be a, a collaborator, to be a creative thinker. And so, it's moving, it's the needle's moving even further now where they're explicitly stating in the curriculum. So Ontario made an announcement last summer that now it needs to be embedded as part of the math instruction. You know, Australia's curriculum two years ago, same thing. If you look at the, the cube that they formed, right? Right up there with literacy, numeracy, and all the other skills are the skills for social, emotional learning, well-being. New Zealand is another government, you know, Australia, Finland, right? If you look at what they're now putting into their policy and their programming all the way down to curriculum level, a teacher now has to plan and explicitly plan for development of, but also opportunities for feedback. And that that's where it gets interesting, right? Because, and I, and I heard you mention, well, how do we quantify it? And this is, you know, hopefully, hopefully, uh, if all goes well, we don't go down the path of making it a, hey, Sally, you know, how did Johnny do on his communication, his creativity score? And oh, my son scored higher on creativity than your son. Hopefully we don't turn it into this competitiveness, but rather the spirit of what assessment should be, which is, helping someone along their journey of discovery and development of themselves. Right? On that point with the helping to find, to, to support that journey of discovery for whatever it may be for that person, I think the most important thing here is the, the delivery person of that message, the, the teachers. Mm. What are some new methods or some strategies that you've developed or worked with on how to make teachers better at their job. Not that teachers are bad, but are there things that you've seen where teachers are maybe adopting new ways to teach, whether it's through group work, whether it's through more experiential learning, whether it's through creating new different forms of content that can be consumed in ways like, what are some tools for fellow teachers out there that want to try and rethink the way that they are teaching to ultimately make a larger impact? Yeah, great question. You know, I think from all the different programs and initiatives and, and things that I've seen uh, across the globe. I think the ones that are most promising and the ones that I've seen have the most impact is more around the ones that, that realize that 
the solution actually lies within the teachers, right? So, and I'm a strong believer of this is I think the answers and the strategies are not only best defined, but actualized when it comes from the person themselves. And it takes, and I think you need leadership, you need opportunities to actually create these environments and these spaces where you empower educators to first bring out the ones who are asking these questions, right? Because they exist, right? There's there's hundreds of thousands of teachers that are looking to, you know, self-improve and that are they're asking the questions of, you know, and I'll give you my own personal story, right? 20 years ago, I worked, worked at one of Ontario's first uh, one-to-one schools. So all the kids came in with, with laptops. And, you know, and these are privileged kids because we, we filtered them. So not every kid could come to the school. They had to apply. So they had to be good academic standing. They obviously, they had to pay for their own device. It was like over $3,000 Canadian. And it was quite a bit at the time. And so it was a very niche group, right? That were already getting in. But even so, kids were falling through the cracks. Their kids were still struggling. And, you know, I'd scratch my head going, what is going on? And so what we realized is that it's not enough to provide them with every single, you know, we had, you know, digital resources available to them, we had office hours, you know, we had extra support and still we're flying through the crack because it comes down to the, to the child, to the person. So as a group, we realized, wait a minute, it's not enough to provide the math curriculum. That's the department I taught in. We have to actually develop the child. And, and what are the skills that they're going to need to be successful as learners? And what if we started integrating that into our programming? And as a group, we just kind of came across this because we realized how are these, you know, these kids have no reason to be falling through the cracks, no reason at all. But it's maybe our programming wasn't delivering what these kids needed. And it was that self-discovery and a group of us coming together where we started thinking differently about our programming. And so, you know, that was just my own example, but I'll, you know, I'll extrapolate that to programs where, you know, that create, uh, that realizes that the best capital you have is that of your teachers. And all you need to do is connect educators that have a shared kind of purpose towards development around certain programming and put them together. And that's the key is not to go at it on your own. So if there's educators listening in the room, the best advice I could give, because I made the mistake when I started my teaching career, I took way too long, about four years. I started doing everything on my own, pushing boundaries, and it was just slow. As soon as I started connecting, as soon as I started connecting with other educators who were just as interested or curious or passionate about the topic that I was interested in progressing myself in, Oh my goodness, the things that we started doing together in just four or five, six months and the impact we're able to have in our schools and other schools were just astronomical. So that's, I would say, programs that focus on it. By the way, this is evidence-based. Like this isn't just, you know, in my experience, this, you know, if you look at uh, several people that have studied this. So uh, Andy Hargreaves and Michael Fullen, they talk, I think they wrote a book together on uh, professional capital and communities of practice, even uh, who else in Australia. And, you know, what's his name? Oh my gosh, I can't believe I forgot his name. He'll come to me. He'll come to me. John Hattie, he's looking at, right? They did meta-analysis on what are all the things that we could do to have a significant impact on student achievement. And every year the researchers are collating it. And what are the things that rise to the top? It's all the things that make learning visible. All the things when teachers are reflecting on, hey, how did that go today? What was my purpose today? And what was my impact? Oh my gosh. And how did that come out? And when you do that in conjunction with others, when you're evaluating yourself and asking yourself, how might I improve? How might I uh, change this or make this better? And when you do that in unison with others, your ability to fast forward your impact is just, it's incredible. So I would say, you know, of all the different practices, strategies, initiatives that I've seen, it's, you know, people who can, I call them change agents, right? So are catalysts, right? People who can create these environments and these spaces to really bring out the power and potential of the people who kind of 
have the ownership of making this possible, I think it lives within everybody. But it takes, I think, special people to be able to bring it out or create the conditions where people can kind of actualize it for themselves. So well said. And I think it's important to have both humility and vulnerability as a teacher with knowing mm. that, as you mentioned earlier, was that you're trying to do all yourself and you know, maybe not trying to stick to the system, but it's tough to, to build or do anything completely by yourself. And it's okay to acknowledge that you don't have any answers and that there are other communities and uh, other teachers out there that are like you that either have access to resources or can find access to resources and, and rethink the way that you are delivering value to your students. And I like what you said today of even from a teacher perspective, what, what was my purpose today and what, what, what did I accomplish or what, what impact did I create today? And I, I try and ask that myself that every night when I go to sleep, I'm like, what did I do today? And, and sometimes it's like, well, you know, maybe it wasn't the best day, but Phil, as long as you got more good days than bad, then it's a good thing. <laughs> um, but from you talked about being a catalyst and, and, I, and I see, and I know that the organization that you work for and with is, is called Catalyst. So tell me about this. What does Catalyst mean? You know, I guess maybe it's similar to the word, but tell me about Catalyst and, and your work with Catalyst. Yeah, sure. You know, and Catalyst, it's, you know, it, I look at Catalyst as like instigators, right? So Catalyst is a scientific term. You know, you could Google what it, what it means, but from an education context, you know, I really believe, you know, I, I'm very passionate that, yes, we need innovations. We need new ways of thinking and doing. But more than that, you know, being in the industry for over 25 years, uh, there's no shortage of ideas and there's some great ideas and we need more of them. But what there is a shortage of, is people who can take these ideas and get them scaled so that what we see is we have mass impact versus just pockets of impact. And I see this a lot, where there's a teacher in a classroom doing amazing things, and it's great for those kids. But what about the other 23 classrooms in that school? Or you see a school, right, that's doing amazing things. But what about the five other schools in that region, right? And you see this all over the world as you just see pockets of success and we celebrate them and we need to. But what we need are people who can take these pockets and figure out how do we distribute this insight and how do we have more people have impact? And so I look at catalysts in education as those who are creating opportunities and spaces to have greater impact. And the story of actually how the, the, the organization formed was at an event in, uh, if you're familiar with BET, it's the largest uh, ed tech event in the UK. And there was another event that was created for someone who was connected to BET at the same time. So it ran parallel to that same event, but it was on the opposite end of the city. So if you were a leader in education, you had to make a choice. Do I go to the more kind of vendorish, uh, tech-focused you know, uh, event, or do I go to this leader leadership discussion, right? And so it was at that event, I just finished getting off a panel discussion, ironically, on social-emotional learning that they told me last minute to be part of. And then the director of Harvard's uh, Institute for Teaching and Learning came up to me. We started having this conversation, and I pulled in the founder of, of, of Learn It. And the conversation was centered around, you know, isn't it interesting how we go to these events where we're talking about leadership and change and transformation in education with some of the, you know, government officials and school-level leaders and even some of the industry leaders that are really driving change in education, you know, shaping the future of education. We talk about all these great things. And then we go away for a year and we come back a year later and we talk about the same things and not much has changed in between. How might we change that? How might we be 
catalysts or instigators for actually having people not just talk about change, but put the actions in place to make it a reality. And so that's kind of where Catalyst is born. And it's just a, you know, a partnership of a variety of different organizations. We're very grateful. Smart Technologies has been funding and a cheerleader of it uh, since the beginning, as well as other great uh, organizations and people, Stephen Heppel, Conrad Foundation, Ken Shelton, and, you know, CEDA and, and RTM and so many other organizations that have, have partnered. And basically what we do as we partner with organizations who have communities of government officials, school system leaders, so superintendents, directors of education, chief technology officers, curriculum instruction leaders, and school level leaders as well. So, you know, principals, vice principals of schools. And what we do is we, you know, when they have their traditional uh, events or their traditional uh, experiences for their members, what we do is provide another, another type of session, which we call catalyst experiences, right? Or catalyst sessions. And what these are, you know, where the traditional ones, you get an expert to come in and share content with the audience. What we do is we believe the expertise is in the audience. And so where what we do for 80, 90% of the session, it is the audience engaging in a dialogue with each other to co-construct shared insight. So it's usually around a shared challenge that the audience has, or it's around a shared kind of outcome that the audience wants to get to. And what we do is it's usually small, small rooms, small groups of people coming together and co constructing, then we, uh, we usually have experts in the room to kind of guide and identify things that are common, things that are missed. And then we consolidate it and kind of create a shared output for the group. Uh, and then, of course, make it public so that people can see it. And obviously, COVID kind of uh, <laughs> deviated our plans, but we've been doing these online ever since. And, you know, I think we've, I think I can say we've convened the most, I think we convened over uh, 80 plus different countries around the world, government officials in these types of dialogues since uh, COVID hit. Uh, so these are at a, at a national ministry of education, department of education level, and as well, uh, school system leaders as well, superintendents, CTOs, COOs. Uh, so it's been a, it's been a fun year. I think there's over 3000 people that have participated. We're always looking for more partners and more people to be part of our groups. And it's really around, you know, let's, I think there's still value in being part of experiences where we're learning, we're sitting and we're passively taking in information and learning and applying that to the work we do. But I think the world is ready for connecting with others around. We have so much insight inside of us. What if we connected with others that had similar interests or desires to create similar changes and we put these people together to actually work together to create those changes in a unified way? So turn you know, ideas into action is the spirit of what, what Catalyst does. Well said. And I love what you've done with Catalyst and it speaks to a lot of my beliefs and I within my day job and as well as within the sustainability world I've before COVID found myself going to all these trade shows and going to these events and I went to them sort of just excited and and sort of blind to what was a lot of stuff going around me but then after a couple years I just kept thinking that same question I'm like we're talking about the same thing as last year like what actually changed from last year and and I started challenging people saying what are you actually going to do differently tomorrow? And from a sustainability perspective, I was like, we spent so many resources to get here. How is this going to impact any type of positive change moving forward tomorrow? And so I like how you were talking about scaling this idea into action because we need that. I mean, granted, small pockets of success are great, but we need to take these individual ideas and turn it into action. And I mean, I, one thing I think about quite a bit is there's 7.3 billion people in the world now, soon to be 9 billion in, in 2050. And there's all sorts of challenges from energy, food, water, but education arguably is one of the most important frameworks and systems that we need to get right. And I'd love to know your thoughts as it pertains to 
the future of education. And I want to phrase it in sort of two ways of what's something that really excites you, like something you're most excited about with the future of education. And on the flip side, what's something that you're terrified of and keeps you up at night around the future of education? Oh, great questions. Uh, so I think the, the thing I'm most excited about, and actually I think, you know, this the COVID has been a great instigator for it, is pushing everybody, literally everybody on the planet to realize, or at least to be exposed to different ways in which learning takes place, right? And that our traditional paradigm that learning needs to be in a building at a certain specific period of time needs to go away. But at the same time, what needs to be dialed up is that these alternative methods of learning, we really need to do a better job at understanding the, some basic fundamental principles of what learning is. And I think this might relate to the fear that I have, right? Is that when we try to box learning in a digital way, we lose the spirit of what learning is, right? And I'll give you a prime example. How many parents or how many of you are listening right now that are like, oh my God, I hate online learning. Oh my God, this is the worst thing ever. Well, ask yourself, well, how was that delivered? What is learning, first of all? Like, what is the fundamental concept of learning? When does learning take place? What are the, you know, what does neuroscience teach us? Behavioral psychologists, cognitive psychology, what does that teach us about how people learn? And have we been applying those concepts in an online way? And the answer is no. For the majority part, we haven't. We haven't learned how to really take the fundamental principle of what learning is and apply it in a differentiated space, which is like online. So the world has a lot of learning to do there. But I'm excited because what I think the pandemic's done, you know, for the last 20 plus years, I've been advocating for guys, let's think technology is a good way of looking at education and learning in a different way and democratizing it and giving access and breaking down the, the traditional ways and helping us get more efficient with how we learn. And most importantly, teaching us how to learn. That's the most, I think that might be the most exciting part. We're getting to a place where we can start learning how we learn best. Because we'll be able to see, yeah, you know what, reading that document, having that conversation with my friend, and then doing that little quiz, that was, every time I do that, oh my God, like, I retain so much more information than when I do that science project, or when I do, when I'm just sitting there and I'm, you know, doing the one page, one to five questions, and I do that test the following week. Oh my God, I never, I barely remember anything from that. So we're getting to a place where we can start reflecting and there's data, there's going to be evidence that tells us and shows us when we learn best and when we don't learn best. So I think I'm most excited about that part is that we're awoken to the fact that there's other ways in which we can quote unquote do learning, <laughs> right? And there's going to be insight and evidence that it's going to give us feedback as learners. And when I say we, by the way, I'm talking, you know, kids, but I'm not talking about adults too. How many of us are constantly needing to learn? And we're always going to be learning. And I think that's the exciting part is how maybe the way we've always learned wasn't the most efficient way. And we're going to start becoming aware of that. Imagine when the whole world, right, cradle to grave, starts learning how they learn best. And we start applying that in these new ways of learning. That's what most excites me. The part that scares me a little bit is that we still, you know, I'm always going back to, I think, your original question is, what is education? Is opportunity. You know, I also see the reality, which is we're, you know, we're human beings and we're very competitive and we like having this kind of class system and this way of telling that one person's better than another person. And, and in doing so, you know, how many people live on this planet hating school, 
right? Because it was an opportunity that showed them how much they suck every day, right? And my fear is that the new systems and mechanisms that we create doesn't value the individual and the person as it should. And so I think it's it's going to be up to all of us and all of you know all of us that are part of the process in creating these and everybody who's who's responsible for creating these new platforms and systems, especially with AI and machine learning as it's coming in, is how do we make sure that we respect and value the dignity of every single human being, and we make sure that the learning mechanisms and processes are there to promote, support, and encourage versus create this kind of system that exists today, which is you know making people feel like they're valuable invaluably, you know, they're value, they're less valued contributors because of some grading or ranking or some program that they took that constantly reminded them that they're subpar to other people that took it at the same time. So that's, I think, a challenge and that kind of worries me as we kind of get into this digitized age is the, the greater divide that it might create from those who learn to take advantage of these technologies. And they, you know, just like what happened with COVID, right? Mom and dad got you the tutor, math tutor, and the English tutor. And now these kids are supercharged. They not just got a whole two years gain of learning. Meanwhile, you know, some other kids have not gone back, right? Because they haven't had any instruction for a year. And it'll create the, for these further divides in society, which I think are, I, we know how those things play out uh, when, when we look at kind of how uh, society unfolds. Well said, Giancarlo. And, and one thing that, that struck a chord with me there is the disrupting the status quo with some of the existing systems that have been in place where I often face people who don't want to change. And I, I, they, and they say, oh, this is the way we've always been doing it. And I'm like, well, just because you've been doing it that way for 50 years or 100 years does not mean forever. I mean, you know, especially from education, humans have been learning forever since, since the dawn of time. And we've just sort of institutionalized and structured in different ways. And I think about what I hated about education. And some of it was the methods of how we were judged and how much we knew. I consider myself to be maybe more of a street smart and emotional, social, knowledgeable person, less so on test taking. I, I was terrible at tests. I would just I remember that was the thing I always dreaded. And I'd get various C's and B's. And I remember just thinking like, wow, like these other people are getting A's and like they must be better than me. I think that's just, that stuck with me for a while. And as I entered my teaching realm, I don't want to use a test score or necessarily a grade as a, as a form of identifying who you are or what, what value you bring. And so I, I like, I like your thinking there. So I, you know, I kind of just want to maybe circle back to just kind of a, a final, final thought from you to, to aspiring educators out there or aspiring students you know, from ways to get involved or, or a final mic drop from you, what would, what would you say to those that are, trying to get involved and teach themselves? And then what would you also say to the teachers out there that are looking to, to improve themselves and maybe get, get more with the, the 2021 education norms or needs? Ooh, good question. I would probably say, I think generally we under, I think we underestimate our ability to have impact generally. Whether you're a student or whether you're an educator or even a leader, right? Or even someone at a system level or even people within policy and government, you know, there's so many times I, I, I feel like they're throwing their hands up like, oh, but there's not much I can do. I think generally the one thing that I've seen is that we underestimate our ability to have impact and to make a difference. And if there's 
on the flip side, when I look at those scenarios, people have just accomplished incredible things and made incredible impacts and changes in the education ecosystem. It's because they didn't believe that. And so, and that's where it starts, right? Is that you really, you have to believe that you can. And then I think connected with that is that you can't go at it alone, right? Who else has that same belief where you can then go at it together? And I think with those two simple things, you know, whether you're a learner, you know, I always tell this to, to my to my kids and I'm trying to like horse them to, I speak a lot around the world and I was like, guys, I want you, I want you guys on stage instead of me. I want to see, you know, I want to see more kids being advocates. I want us to start empowering kids with this knowledge of what it takes to learn, to teach and new models. And I want you guys on stage to advocate for yourselves. Like I would love kids to be empowered, to be in a classroom and provide insight and strategy back to the teacher teachers about, hey, you know what, when you shared that or the way that you did that, if you only made this slight tweak, it would have had a significant impact on my ability to be connected into your lesson, right? Like imagine if kids are empowered to do that, right? And so, you know, if you're a student listening, I know you know, you have that power. And all I'd say is, have you tried, right? What have you done? Right. What, what if, what if you changed your mindset from a, you know, I'm just a kid, I'm just a student, right? To, well, what if, because I'm a student, what impact might I be able to make, right? And the same thing with the teacher, right? You, you know, and this is even, I remember when I was in a school and, and I was I was like, well, how come only like the privileged kids have access to this program? Like, what if all kids, what if the whole school district had access to programs and all the classrooms had access to devices, right? What might happen then? And now fast forward, how many kids are in classrooms, you know, have access to devices, right? And the impact that it's having. And so I think we underestimate our ability to have impact, but it needs to come from, you know, a clear kind of focus on, you know, what is it? Actually, I'd start the other way. Why is it, right? What is it? What's that? What's driving you to want to see or experience something different? And then the question is, who else has that same why? And what might happen if two, three, four, five of you got together to ask that question and then to say, what might we do about it locally in the classroom that we're in? Right? Or as a parent, even if there's parents listening, right? Like it's it's incredible. I mean, parents underestimate how much power they have in the system, right? Because it's your taxes going to the public system, right? And what happens when you come together and you work with school board trustees who are there to be your voice? Many parents don't even know that, but it takes you realizing that you have a voice, and then it's finding out the communities of people that that are there to listen to it and to support you and then doing something about it collaboratively. And that's the thing that I, I want to maybe leave with is, you know, I have yet to meet a school system leader at a government level, at a school level or a principal that's like, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to talk to parents or teachers. I don't care about the opinion. I'm just going to sit in my box and just do my own thing. Okay. Yes, they might exist. For the most part, they're human like you and I. They want to create an impact. They want to, the reason why they got into this space is to have an impact. For the most part, I know there's exceptions, but what we have to do is start working together. And that's why I said, you have to start with why, know you have a voice, and then find the people that share similar interest and passion. And you'll be surprised. There might be a superintendent, a school board trustee, another parent, another student, another teacher, someone else in the ecosystem. And, and don't just think it has to be in your environment. You have access literally to the world. In fact, Clubhouse is a good way of connecting you to people around the world who will have a similar passion and interest. And when the three or four or five of you get together and start acting in it locally, you'll impress and surprise yourself as the impact that you can do. John Carlo, I'm glad that Clubhouse brought us together so we were able to have this conversation. And I've, I've learned so much from you, as, and I'm excited to take these lessons learned in, into my education career. And so to kind of just round this out, if people wanted to 
get in touch with you or, or learn more about your organizations, what's the best way to get in touch with you or, or the work you're doing at Catalyst? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, if you're on Clubhouse, uh, G Brado, first letter by first name and my last name is a way to connect there. And I always, always love uh, getting to, to learn and hosting rooms there and getting to meet people across the globe. With Catalyst, it's educatalyst.com. We're currently doing a whole facelift. So right now, don't check out the website right now. What day is it? It's uh, April 7th. So don't check it out this week, but in a week or so, we'll have all our reports and all our events that are upcoming and ways you can uh, participate. And as well, uh, educatalyst.club is also coming up and we'll, we'll host all the different rooms and experiences and events there that we're hosting on Clubhouse as well. So lots of ways uh, to get involved. And if you're an organization that uh, convenes uh, school level leaders, system leaders or governments, you know, please reach out. We love to do this. We have some great uh, sponsors and supporters. So it's not about, we're not a, you know, a, a money-making organization. We're an impact-making organization. So our costs are super, super low to, to run experiences with. And we invite uh, anybody to join in and participate and uh, be part of uh, transformation with us. That's uh, the spirit of the work that we do. Right on. And we'll put all those links and information, the the recap and Giancarlo, just on behalf of the SDG Talks community and, and educators and learners around the world. We thank you. Oh, and thank you. It's when you bring people onto your space and engage these conversations and connect people in a shared dialogue. This is what we need more of. So uh, you are a catalyst, Kevin, whether you uh, you know it or not. So thank I want to thank you for, for the invitation and for doing this great work. And uh, for all you listening, I really appreciate you spending some time with us today. Awesome. Thanks so much. <laughs> Take care, Kevin. Thanks for listening to the SDG Talks podcast. Make sure to check out all the show notes for relevant links from this show. Please share and follow SDG Talks on social media and stay tuned for updates from the Unleash in United Nations community. The goal of the SDG Talks is to bring you good content. So if you want to learn about something specific or have suggestions, please let us know. We look forward to seeing you next time on SDG Talks.